Hello, everyone. This is Mark C. Crowley, and you're listening to the Lead from the Heart podcast. I'll start things off by asking you a question. Why is it that when we think of leadership, we instinctively believe we must suppress everything that we feel? Think about it. We go out of our way to hire the brainiest people for management roles. We insist business decisions be made with pure rationality. And we tell employees when they arrive at work to check your emotions at the door. Somehow we've managed to convince ourselves that marginalizing our feelings and emotions puts us in full control and that we actually have the ability to turn them off with just a turn of a switch. Well, the truth of the matter is we never really had that kind of power. And whether we realize it or not, emotional dynamics not only affect our motivations, communications, and decisions, we're far more effective when we leverage them to our advantage. Science knows much more about how feelings and emotions influence human behavior, and joining me on the podcast to discuss many of the new discoveries is Liz Fosline, who, along with Molly West Duffy, is the co-author of the new book, No Hard Feelings, being released this month. Impressively, their book already has received effusive praise from authors including Susan Cain, Laszlo Bach, Adam Grant, and our recent podcast guest, Chip Conley. I'm excited to dive into my discussion with Liz and to explore two keen leadership insights that research proves our best judgment and problem solving only result when we intentionally employ our emotions and that feelings and emotions hold great sway over our employees' motivation, engagement, and productivity. Indeed, Liz and Molly have declared that the future is emotional. I'm coming to you from La Jolla, California, and she's joining us from Berkeley, California, Welcome to the podcast, Liz Fosley. Hi, thanks for having me. Well, this is going to be fun. I'm really looking forward to it. And just to get started here, your book is called No Hard Feelings. And I want you to tell us how you chose the title. And you had a co-author, Molly West Duffy. What inspired you guys to write this book? Yeah, so the title was just a nice kind of tongue-in-cheek thing we came up with pretty early. The book is... Really, the thrust of it is trying to encourage people to treat their emotions with more affection as opposed to always seeing them as something that needs to be suppressed or wrangled into the submission. And so No Hard Feelings came up with it early in the process. And then we kind of had ideas to change it. But after about a year of working on the book, we were both like, we've just gotten so used to saying this. We're Mm -hmm. going to keep it. And then the inspiration behind the book is... Both Molly and I, early in our careers, we held this belief very deeply that you just did not have feelings in the workplace. And if, unfortunately, you did, you certainly did not express them to anyone. So professionals did not fuss. They did not feel. They were just kind of cool, calculating robots. And that was really harmful to both of us. We both worked at really stressful jobs. And then because we were just suppressing our emotions all the time and never turned to anyone for help, Looking back, I didn't even know that it was possible to talk to your manager about maybe changing the responsibilities of your role or, you know, job crafting and getting staff on a project that maybe feels a little more exciting to you. I didn't even realize that that was an option. And so we both kind of burnt out of those jobs. And looking back, a lot of it was that we didn't know how to practice emotional self-care. We didn't know how to communicate our needs. And so the book is really trying to give people a framework for how to do that and really give them permission to to start acknowledging their emotions. Well, I think that there's a deep history in business where we said, check your emotions at the door, you know, <laughs> leave yeah. your personal life outside of this. And so it's not a surprise that you had that conflict. But I'm wondering if you also think that as a woman, 
in the workplace. You had that even harder or not? So in other words, do you believe through your research, is this a problem for men and women or is it particularly hard for women or both? So I think it's different. I think that men, our sort of traditional notion of masculinity is that they're rational, that they're not overcome with emotion. So I think that can lead men to just suppress, 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 which is, as I kind of just described, can be really detrimental. Also, if you're not acknowledging, thinking through your emotions, you're missing out on the valuable data they often contain. And then women, on the other hand, also, I think, have run the risk of suppressing too much, but for a different reason, because women are traditionally seen as more hysterical and overly emotional. And we, again, have this very ingrained traditional view that you have emotion on one side of the spectrum and then rationality on the complete opposite side. And so I think that does damage to both genders. So we interviewed many female leaders and something that they're often told is to be more measured. And I think that's just a way of don't express so much emotion or any, you know, as we, or any, right. And as we can talk about a little later too, just when it comes to leadership, it's actually in your benefit to show some emotion. So I think where men kind of are maybe suppressed too much, women have to really grapple with walking this line between they don't want to seem overly emotional, but then how much emotion should they show becomes the question because you don't want to be seen as like a robot that has no feelings. In your perspective, do you think we really judge people as harshly as we think they do when they display emotions? I don't know. That's a good question. I would say looking at the research, people perceive emotional expression by leaders differently than they perceive emotional expression by their peers or friends or, you know, in their personal life. So there's a really fascinating study where Toyota had this big product recall a few years ago where I think people died because there was something wrong with the car. And so researchers had a video of the CEO of Toyota apologizing and he was expressing emotion. But half the people in the study watched the video and did not know that it was the CEO. And the other half watched the video and were told that it was the CEO. And the ones who were told it was the CEO thought that the emotional expression was fake, whereas the ones who didn't know it was the CEO thought it was really authentic. So I think there's also studies that show that leaders, if they don't express any emotion, people trust them a lot less. But if they show too much emotion, it kind of undermines their credibility to their reports. So I think if you're a leader, people are actually really looking carefully and responding quite a lot to the emotional signals you're sending. In a positive way? In a positive way and sometimes in a negative way. So in the book, we really encourage people to practice selective vulnerability, which is if you're a leader, it is important to have some emotion. Like if your company went through a round of layoffs and you act like everything's totally fine, no one's ever going to trust you because that's so weird. You're just responding really unnaturally. So they're just going to assume that you always have this fake veneer. But if you start weeping in front of your employees, they're probably not going to trust in your ability to lead them. So selective vulnerability is speak to the emotion, but then provide a path forward. So in the layoff example, you might say something like, this has been a really hard time and it's hard on me. I'm guessing it's hard on you. And I want to acknowledge that. That said, I'm putting in a lot of processes into place to make sure this doesn't happen again. And here's what I'm doing. Here's what I need from you. And here's where we hope to be in six months. And so it's a nice balance of like connecting with people on that emotional level but backing it up with, here's a plan going forward of how I'm going to fix this. 
So a balance of heart and mind, a balance of rational and emotion, right? That's kind of where you're going. And that's great. I actually, you know, listening to the story you told about Toyota and the people in the room that saw the CEO and didn't know he was the CEO and then found out he was and then said it seemed fake and, you know, insincere. Mm -hmm. I want to ask you a question. I'm just making the thought that I wonder if it's because they've never seen CEOs be emotional. And so when they see it, like, this has to be fake, right? Yeah, I mean, that could definitely be at play. They're so out of practice. Yeah, we did talk to some executives who said that, unfortunately, there is this perception that leaders are also lying to us. And I think that, again, comes Mm -hmm. from this long history of leaders never showing emotion. And so just if someone never reveals any kind of chinks in a carefully crafted armor, yeah, it's hard to believe anything they're saying. So I think what you're saying can definitely be a factor here. But again, I think it comes from just leaders for a long time not having the freedom or feeling comfortable expressing any emotion. And I think that's really sort of warped the way we think of leadership. Very early in the book, you make the declaration that, quote, the future is emotional. So tell us what you see on the horizon and why you believe emotions will be important to the future of our success. And really, why now? Like, what's going on now? Yeah, so I think kind of what I see on the horizon is just what's happening now, you know, 10x. So just as the pace of automation gets faster, we'll just be collaborating much more. We'll be working with other people on creative tasks. And anytime that you're working with people, there's potential for conflict. You know, we're not on an assembly line anymore focused on one specific task that doesn't require us to interact with others. So that just really necessitates an understanding of your emotional state, an ability to communicate that to others and then to listen to how they're feeling and kind of work on that together. And then another big trend is just the rise of the remote worker. I had a friend who just took a job at a company where every single person is remote. And so in that kind of model, I think it becomes really interesting, but also important to still cultivate a sense of belonging. I think when people don't see each other every day, physically in an office, it can quickly feel like you're just talking to a bot or to just a name that pops up in your email. So how do you, if people aren't in the same location physically, how do you still make them feel like they're a team? How do you make them feel loyalty to the organization and motivate them to do a great job? And keep them connected, right? Yeah. Well, that's great. So really good. I appreciate that. Also very on the book, you make the point that just so happens to be one of the most underlying themes of this podcast and the idea that Emotions play an enormous role in affecting our motivations, our choices, health, communication, you name it. And so this is when I lit up when I started reading this early on in your book. So let's get into this. Tell us how emotions affect all these things and especially why making good decisions requires us to be aware of our emotions. Yeah, I think decision making is this really fascinating area where There's strong views of like, you should never listen to your gut and you should always listen to your gut. Mm -hmm. And the answer is just that there's a science to listening to your gut. So the people, researchers looked at investors who are investing in the stock market and they found that the people who picked the best investments are actually the ones who were very open to acknowledging their feelings. So at the moment of decision, they expressed what they were feeling, expressed what, you know, what that gut feeling was. And they didn't always follow the gut feeling. But they were like processing it and trying to understand what it might be telling them, as opposed to the people that did worse were just like not talking about their feelings at all or were not aware of what they were feeling. And why this is so important is that 
some of your feelings are noise and some of them are really useful. Let's say you're making an important decision and you're not acknowledging everything you're feeling. You're not able to get rid of the noise and learn from the useful emotions. So an example is envy, which this is one of my favorite examples. I think there's a lot of stigma against envy and I'm definitely not endorsing that you should ever let jealousy make you bitter or affect how you treat someone else. But if you just only squash it, Envy contains really valuable information about what you want. And so, for example, if you're trying to go through a career transition and you're trying to figure out what kind of job do I want next, looking at your network and figuring out whose career makes you jealous might be an actually great way of figuring out, oh, that's a job I should apply for. Or how can I get what this person has? Because it's really evoking a strong emotion in me. And then one more quick example is an emotion that is noise but has the ability to profoundly affect our decisions is just anger or frustration. So say that I'm sitting in traffic for two hours one morning and I come into the office. If I'm not acknowledging that I'm feeling angry and understanding that it's because of the traffic, not because of people around me, I just risk spending the whole day misattributing that frustration to my colleague or to my report or to the person I'm trying to hire. And I might even in an interview, suddenly be like, I don't like this person. But if I just immediately come in and say, I'm frustrated, it's because of traffic, then I'm just better able to put that aside and focus on the decision and kind of keep that away from the frustration. So I'm considering getting married, buying a house, taking a job, big choices. Yeah. Do I or do I not? What's the process that you recommend just in terms of tapping into emotions? Yeah. So we have in the book, we have a checklist. We're really big fans of checklists. Um, I think Atul Gawande mm-hmm. you know, pioneered and, and showed the importance of checklists in the medical field. So we really encourage people to write out your options. So marry this person, don't marry this person, wait a little longer, break up, like the whole range of options. And then list every single thing you're feeling. And cross out the emotions that have nothing to do with the decision. So again, if it's like traffic frustration, cross it out. But if it's like, I think I would really deeply regret not marrying this person, then that's an important emotion. And then we also encourage people to run their thinking by another person. So once you have these emotions that can be really valuable to talk about it with someone and say, I think I would regret this, because then they can also help you flag biases, help you figure out if you've done a good job of figuring out the relevant emotions. And if you have this process in place, anytime you make a decision, there's always going to be uncertainty, but at least you can be confident that you've kind of emotionally regulated the emotions that are not going to help you and and factored in the data from the useful emotions. One of the questions I probably should have asked you at the very beginning, I guess two questions. One is, how have we convinced ourselves that we're purely rational creatures? You know, how have we just basically said, look, we can divorce ourselves from those feelings. You don't have to trust your heart, listen to your heart, follow your heart. None of that matters. Let's just go with our minds, right? And then I'm sure this has come up in your research, but how and why did that become so prevalent in business? So even today, we hire the brainiest people for management, and we don't hire people that necessarily have a caring gene in them. I'm thinking that this is shifting in your future, in your view of the future, but tell us about the past and how we got where we are. Yeah, there is an extremely long history of this. So (laughs) as far back as Plato, he saw 
reason and emotion as two horses pulling a chariot in different directions. And so I think that's kind of really the start of this. You have emotion on one side and rationality on the other side. And I think wrapped in this too is a lot of like the trope of the hysterical female and emotion really being tied into femininity and that they're sort of fickle and they're just like influenced by their feelings. And that completely means that you are not being rational. And so that philosophy, I think, kind of permeated a lot of aspects of life and then started to stick rationality to masculinity. And then again, this hysterical emotionality. And then also, if we think about the white collar work world, it's traditionally been the domain of men. And so I think in a place where you have a lot of men together, the things that people are going to put on a pedestal are, again, these traditional signals of like the great man who is rational, who is Mm -hmm. going to be able to like fire people if he needs to, and will just always optimize around efficiency. So I think that's where a lot of that comes from. And then I think it's just enforced in so many ways. I remember my first job, just the fact that I didn't feel comfortable talking about my emotions. And a big part of that wasn't even necessarily that people were like, oh, you're a woman or there's men here. It's just that I worked with many females like no one ever talked about it. And so now that I've gone back to some of my colleagues at that early job, and I've asked them, like, do you ever feel anxiety? They're like, yes, I felt it all the time. But I think that we all kind of live with this idea that we're the only person that has emotional needs in the workplace. And so we just don't share that with anyone. And that perpetuates this idea of the rational, unemotional workplace. Do you also think that the messiness of human beings plays into this? So in other words, if I can keep the emotions out of the workplace, then I have a much easier job of keeping sanity around the place. Do you think that plays into it too, or has played into it? Yeah. And I think one of the reasons that we have such a negative view of emotions in the workplace currently is because they're not allowed in the workplace. So if you're not able to very early on flag something and say, hey, when you did this, it made me feel a little frustrated. If you just let that fester, then six months down the line, you're just going to explode at someone because you never kind of solved the problem early on because you didn't feel that there was space to do that. And so the emotional expression that we currently see in like a very repressed workplace are just these explosions when the emotion just comes pouring out. And I think that actually the way to prevent having these really intense moments of emotion at work is to just normalize some amount of emotional expression all the time. What's the harm of repressing emotions? We're seeing in the, I'm going to just sort of put foot forward here and see if this resonates with you, but there's tremendous evidence right now that the way we manage people in the workplace, particularly keeping people tethered to their devices and feeling like they're always needing to be on, that we've created an environment where mental health and stress-related illnesses are now the cost of those for organizations is moving at twice the speed of traditional healthcare costs, which we already know are, are increasing. So there's something really concerning there. And I'm wondering if you think because of the environments where we repress emotions, could that be doing some of the harm? Yeah, I think if people can't be open about their needs, that contributes a lot to mental health issues. There's this concept of emotional labor, which is the often unpaid, kind of often unseen emotion work that we do. And and it's very much tied in with surface acting. And surface acting is when the emotional state that you are projecting is very different from 
the emotions that you're actually feeling. So I think Seth Godin describes it as like smiling when you'd rather scream. And there's lots of research that shows that that's extremely detrimental to people's mental health, to their well-being, and, and then eventually to their productivity. There's a lot more now being written about burnout, which is when you just are completely exhausted, you become cynical about your work, you're not motivated, like every day you wake up just like dreading, dragging yourself into the office. And I think all of these are just symptoms of the fact that we're often not able to say, I need a night off, or how can the team work together to give every person on the team like a night off when they don't have to check their email. The Boston Consulting Group, they actually instituted a predictable time off policy that gave each member of a six-person team one weeknight off a week. And employees became much happier. They were more relaxed. They were much less likely to quit. And the other thing that came out of this is that team members also learned to be more mindful of each other's well-being. So in an environment where suddenly it was okay to say, I just need one night to be off, people were like, okay, great. I need that too. And how can we cover for each other? How can we make this happen? So yeah, I think sort of the suppression of emotion which then leads to, it just leads to you not really getting to carve out the kind of work environment that will make you healthy and will actually make you successful in a sustainable way. I'm very glad I asked that question. And just to call out the Boston Consulting, these are high paid consultants. And so they're working exceeding long hours and having one night a week off is, you know, a wonderful reprieve for them. But I don't think it's a wonderful reprieve for most people. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. But I, I mean, I think it's just, and, and this is really what we talk about in the book, is just having a discussion with your team about what are people's needs. And it's not about like, oh, we're going to let this one person slack because that's their needs. It's really about how can we create structures that will make people happier, that will make them then more productive, and that will make them less likely to leave. I think turnover is just something that we heard from executives that they're worried about all the time. And I think that there's just a lot of research that shows that turnover is correlated with like not feeling belonging, not feeling like you can speak up, not having a good relationship with your manager. So all of these really central tenets of just feeling the freedom to have emotion. Wonderful. You're triggering something in me, which is, you know, what are emotions? And my understanding of emotions is that they derive from our needs so that when our needs feel that they're being met, when we have a good relationship with our boss and we can open and have a trusting relationship and we're growing and developing and being appreciated and doing good work, we're sort of marinating in positive emotions, which is what human beings need in order to thrive. And then the antithesis of that is all the things that you just described. People end up in negative emotions because their needs aren't being met. And when people marinate in negative emotions, they either burn out or shut down, disengage or quit. So everything you're talking about is so timely in terms of what we're saying here on this show about leadership. So your answers have been wonderful. So thank you. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate it. It's, I think it's just such an important message. So I'm glad that it's resonating and that we're on the same team. (laughs) (laughs) We we are. So I want to go back now to decision making because Daniel Kahneman in your book has something that I'd never heard of before. And then in his own book, Thinking Fast and Slow, talks about making decisions. So I want to talk about Daniel Kahneman now. So for my audience, Nobel Prize winning economist who wrote 
I think it's now five or six years old. Thinking Fast and Slow is named the best book of the year. But we'll go to your book first, which is that he gives this simple advice on how to leverage emotions in making our most important decisions. Mm -hmm. And so tell us that story. It's really cool. First of all, it's like a life dream for my book to be mentioned in the same breath. as <laughs> <laughs> So I really appreciate that. But yes, we recommend in the book based on kind of what he did, which is to really try picking the option that you think will minimize regrets. And so if you're thinking about the big decisions in life, try to imagine what you would come to regret after you had chosen some option and then choose the option that would make you feel the least regret. So I kind of alluded to this earlier in the checklist. If you're trying to decide, should I pick a job or not? Really like sit down and think through, envision yourself in each scenario and which one makes you feel regret because it might be that you're missing out on that other scenario. Well, that taps into what I think is the higher self and the inner voice that seems to know better. And in his book, Thinking Fast and Slow, it absolutely stunned me because it's been alleged that it's the most bought book that's never been read <laughs> because it's really a slog to read and it's very long. But I will tell you that I did read it and I got to the end of it. And his whole principle is that we have two different systems of thinking and one of them is purely instinctual and that we rely on that most of the time, but that because we rely on it most of the time, it gets us into trouble because we're missing steps. He calls them heuristics mm. that interfere with us, right? So he's really emphasizing the idea that our best thinking is done where we're really, really rational, where we're very much conscious of how our mind is working and what it's telling us. And so he's got page after page of these examples of how we human beings make bad choices because of these heuristics. And at the very end, he says, there's something about the heart. <laughs> he said, what I recommend is when you're making an important question, the getting married, the taking the job, the buying the house, that you do your analytics, that you really run the numbers every possible way so that you have the most purely rational way of looking at this and coming up with the best decision. You know, as Shakespeare said, ask your heart what it doth know, mm -hmm. you know, tap into yeah. those feelings. And so his idea about regret really taps into the same thing as far as I'm concerned, because if you make the decision to not take a job and you go, oh, man, I'm going to regret not doing this. That's that inner voice again. So tell me what you think. I love it. Yeah. I mean, I think just the way that he describes emotions, too, I think is such a great framework. They really are just data points. And again, in our book, we say like you shouldn't follow your gut, but you should listen to it. It's an important signal. And I think sometimes the gut can be in the case of like, should I marry this person? Sometimes the gut can just be an overwhelmingly powerful signal. And that's something you should listen to. So yeah, that was great. I think what he's saying is listen to both. Yeah. Don't discount either one right. of them. You know, even in your book, there's a point where you're talking about making hiring decisions. And I think you put in capital letters and, you know, thick black felt pen <laughs> ink, you know, do not trust your heart in making hiring decisions. Right. And the only caveat that I would have in that is that, yes, if you go in and you're just going on feelings, you're going to make a decision. That guy makes me feel great. Let's hire him. That's silliness, right? Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I can tell you that I have made decisions to not hire people and hire people that I ended up really regretting, mm -hmm. particularly when I had a feeling, you know, something telling me this isn't going to be right. Mm -hmm. 
And because I was seduced by what I thought they were able to do for my team and for me, I brought them on and they proved to be really disruptive. Mm -hmm. So the only point I'm saying is if you ever get to a point where you've done the pure rational and you have some voice saying, "Mm -mm, don't do it. I've learned to trust that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I really have. Yeah. So let's talk about communication because you have all these different steps of using these emotions and communication just seems like a really big one. And so what have you learned about communication and some tips on leveraging emotions to make, you know, particularly from a leadership standpoint? And now you talked about remote working and, you know, you're not seeing people. So how can you connect with people's emotions in your communication with them? Yeah, so I think communication as a leader I think one of the most important things is, again, just to flag what you're feeling. In the book, we say, talk about your emotions without getting emotional. And I think why this is so important for leaders is that let's say you come in again, I'm going to use the traffic example. You've been sitting in traffic, you come in, you're really upset. If your report sees you that upset, they're just going to immediately think it has something to do with them. And so if you don't flag like, oh, I just sat in traffic for two hours, I'm upset, it has nothing to do with you, I just need five minutes. If you don't say that, you're just causing them to go down an anxiety spiral. One of the people that we interviewed in the book was Kim Scott, who wrote Radical Candor. Mm -hmm. And she said that she just so vividly remembers this one morning she came in and she was kind of upset. And then for for something, you know, that had happened at home. And then her employee came up to her and said, you know, I just wanted to tell you that I know what kind of day I'm going to have by the mood you're in when you walk in the door. And so she realized that she hadn't been doing a good enough job of like flagging how she was feeling. So a big piece of advice is just people are going to have bad days. As a leader, you're going to have bad days. If it's really not related to anything the people around you are doing, you really need to work on not letting it affect them and not letting it affect your interactions with them. And then the other big thing about communication that we talk about is difficult conversations, which I think are unfortunately kind of an inevitability. But these happen when you're in conflict with someone or when someone has done something that has left you frustrated or just feeling badly. And it's usually good to address these things in a calm manner. So don't do it right away. Don't do it at the peak of your emotional state. But once you've calmed down, you can pull them aside. And then we really love the framework of saying, when you X, I feel Y. Because what that does is it allows the other person to explain their side and it doesn't create like a perpetrator and a victim. And there's also people can't argue with it. You can't really tell someone, no, you don't feel like that. Mm-hmm. So it's a really nice starting point for a good discussion. And my so an example from my life of this is I worked with someone and when we first started working together, he was a new hire and I'd been there for a little while. And I noticed that When I asked him questions, when he answered my question, he would start speaking extremely slowly and enunciate each word. And I thought that to me, it just seemed like he thought I was an idiot. (laughs) It made me so angry. And so a few weeks later, the whole team was out for dinner and he and I were having a pretty good conversation. And so without saying anything like attacking, I just said, hey, do you notice that when I ask you a question, you start speaking really slowly? Like, is that something that you're aware of? And he said, yeah, I do. And, and I'm sorry, but I just really don't want to sound dumb in front of you. So I'm being really careful to choose my words. And so it was the exact opposite of what I thought mm-hmm. he was doing. And so I think if I had gone into that conversation being like, you're condescending, you're this, you're that, those are all just assumptions. And so you really want to start a difficult conversation 
by creating a floor of here's what's going on. Here's maybe how I'm feeling. Now let's like talk about it, but it doesn't have to be a confrontation. And do it quickly so that it doesn't fester inside of yeah. you and you go in with the best intentions of, you know, assuming innocence. And then you've been allowing this to brew inside of you for a week. And then finally you go, do you realize how you treat yeah. me? <laughs> you know, do you realize how you come, you know, you just blow yeah. it. So that's really insightful. I think that's really great and good for you for having the instinct to not just drop it on them and like a hot potato. So we have a lot of HR leaders, CEOs, you know, managers of all kinds listening in. And another part of the book that really resonated with me, we've started off by talking about that we've denied emotions in the workplace and that the future is really going to be much more emotional. And then you go into saying that the most thriving, successful workplaces have really supportive, positive emotional cultures, if you will. And so... Tell us what that means and what does it mean for organizational success? Yeah, so an emotional culture is formed by all the small signals and gestures that we send. So imagine you walk into an office space and on the wall are a bunch of signs that are really admonishing. So they're saying like, don't leave trash on the table, don't jam the printer, don't do this, don't do that. That small thing creates a really different feeling than if the wall is covered with photos of employees who have just gone to like a really fun day together. So emotional culture is very important to all these things we've talked about, tenure, retention, people's happiness, people's productivity. And this is pretty new in the research, especially in academic research. I think the term emotional culture was formed maybe two or three years ago. So it's really great that this is becoming something that people are talking about more. So let's say you're interviewing at a place and you want to get a really good sense of what the emotional culture there is. I mean, in addition to kind of seeing what's on the walls, also look for how people are interacting with one another. A little thing is like if someone sneezes, does anyone say bless you? Are people expressing gratitude? Just what's kind of the emotion norms in that space? But a really great question is to ask your interviewer and say, what is something that could only happen here? I've asked this question to people and I've gotten like really funny responses, but then I've also gotten responses where the person's initial reaction is just like to tense up immediately. And that's just a very strong signal. Ding, 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 ding. (laughs) Yeah. That's an Adam Grant question. It is an Adam Grant question. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a really great question and can tell you a lot about an office space's emotional culture. One of our fundamental beliefs is that feelings and emotions drive human behavior and engagement too, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're seeing all these pronouncements of don't do this, don't do this, clearly that creates all this negativity and it shuts people down, right? And that becomes contagious. So I even found that when I was sending out communications, particularly like emails to my whole team who was all working remotely, that I intentionally tried to anticipate, well, how are people feeling? How will people feel when they read this? And I used to have my assistant read everything that I would send out like that just to say. And there were times where she'd say, do you realize how you're coming across in this? And I'm like, no, that wasn't my goal at all. And that kind of thoughtfulness really played out well because I think it made people feel good even when we were struggling. Yeah, I love that concept. I do that too. I call it emotionally proofreading my emails. And this is actually Molly, my co-author, and I had something one of our interactions made me start really religiously emotionally proofreading my emails, which was, so we would each take a first stab at a draft. There's eight chapters in the book. So we each had four. And so 
when she would send me something, I was just like in hyper efficiency mode. And I would just write an email with all the bullet points of things I thought needed to be changed. And then I would hit send. And I was like, I felt really good about it because I thought I was getting us quickly to a place of improvement. And I was just giving her really great feedback. And then after a while, she called me and she said, you know, when I get your emails, I feel really bad. And as she started explaining, I was like, of course she feels bad because she sends me something she's worked on really hard. And all she gets in response is just like a list of things wrong with it. And so nowhere in that email was I saying, thank you. I really appreciate everything you've done. I think this part is really good. And I thought that was just obvious in the fact that we were working together and that we were friends. But because I didn't make it explicit, I think this is especially when we're talking about remote workers, this is something that happens a lot in digital communication. So if you're in person, it's easy to pick up on someone's gestures that they feel good about you. And probably if Molly and I had been in person, I would have been more likely to be like, here's all the things that need to change. Also, this is really great. And I just appreciate you so much. But over digital communication, I was just in this efficiency mode. And so as we continued writing the book together, I would still hammer out my bullet point lists. But then I would go back and I would say, what am I not actually writing in this email that I'm thinking? And a lot of it was gratitude. And so I just became much more explicit about expressing all the good things that she had done. And that solved her feeling bad. (laughs) There's a lot of people that think that that kind of thoughtfulness is unnecessary and too time consuming Mm. and people know where I'm coming from and they know that I like them and respect their work and all those kinds of things. But what you just outlined is a really, truly brilliant and effective way of making sure that, you know, particularly if you have a large team, you know, that if you have 30 people working for you and 30 people are reading this and 28 of them are like, what the hell? You know, I mean, you just you're right. You've just taken down people's spirits. And I find that particularly when you're giving people work, like I spent a whole day on this. Mm -hmm. And if you don't acknowledge hey, thanks for putting so much time into this. I love what you did in the first part. I have a couple of ideas that I'd like for you to consider to change, but the big picture is you've worked hard on this and I'm really grateful. Now they're totally wide open to, you know, tell me what I need to fix because you're already pleased with me. And so again, I'm really glad we went down this road. Liz, you also mentioned the importance of belonging earlier in the conversation and tell us what this is, you know, like why is belonging important? And then some of the things that you think managers and leaders can do to make people feel like they belong. Yeah. So belonging is really intertwined with emotional culture. Healthy emotional cultures are ones in which people feel belonging. And so in the book, we describe belonging as Diversity is having a seat at the table, inclusion is having a voice at the table, and belonging is having that voice be heard. And so people feel belonging when they feel valued for everything that makes them unique. And I think that's a really important point. It's kind of a human instinct that we want to belong, but that often means that we're actually hiding everything that makes us unique because we just want to be like everyone else. Mm -hmm. And so if you think about why this is important, I'll start kind of with the financial case for belonging why this is important for innovation, for output, is just if you gather people together, so you bring a team together, and probably you want the best people on your team who have different skills that are complementary, but then who also come from really different backgrounds and who have unique frameworks with which through they can look at the problem. And if you're not creating a space in which those people can talk about their unique skills or throw out ideas and bounce them off each other, 
you might as well not have all these amazing different people in the room because you're just squashing everything that you managed to bring together. And then just from sort of a more heartfelt case for belonging is that researchers look at emails and they found that employees, most employees, when they join a company, they start by emailing like I, but then when they talk or the company, but then after six months, if they've transitioned to describing the company as we, so not like the company is trying to get this client, but we're trying to get this client, they're much more likely to stay longer at that company. And I think that was for them kind of an indicator of whether or not the person felt a sense of belonging at the firm. And then the last example I'll give on this is at LinkedIn, they send out an annual employee survey. And a few years ago, they stuck in a few belonging questions, just kind of on a whim to see what would happen. And those questions actually ended up being the best predictor of whether or not someone would leave within the next year. And the two questions that were the absolute best predictor in like happiness and if they wanted to stay and how well they were doing were one, I feel safe when I make a mistake. So they could admit they made a mistake and they didn't fear that they were going to get fired or going to get punished. And the second one was just, I feel that someone at work cares about me. And so I think that's so profound that it's like these really basic human needs. And if you can work to fulfill those in an office, you will have employees that are like really willing to go to bat for you. Obviously, both of those boil down to the heart. You know, the human need for connection, that belonging is so deep and to feel cared for comes with that. And so I'm wondering, you know, in terms of if you could sort of just look at all the managers in the world out there, are we equipped to do this? Because this sounds like a big pivot. Yeah, it's actually not. It's, or it is a big pivot maybe at the high macro level, but then the way to create belonging really starts with something called micro actions. And so these are, again, the really small actions we take that indicate to someone that they're valued. So a couple examples are just learn to pronounce someone's name correctly. So I love before we start recording, you asked me how to say my last name. And I think there's a really strong signal in that of one, I care about you. And two, now you know how to say my name. So you're much more likely to use it. So an example is we interviewed an executive and he brought together a team and he was really trying to make everyone feel a sense of belonging. So when he called on people, he would look them in the eye. He tried to call on people equally and he thought he was doing a great job. And then a few weeks later, a senior designer on the team came up to him and she said, I noticed that you call everyone in the room by their first name, but you've never said my name. And I think it's because you don't know how to pronounce it. So my name is Karishma and that's how it's pronounced. And he realized that she was absolutely right. Mm -hmm. And so imagine like, I would feel the same if someone was like, John, what do you think? Sally, what's your opinion? And then they looked at me and they were like, you. <laughs> hey, yeah, buddy. So, so when we talk about our managers equipped to create belonging, it's these small things that can make such a big difference. Another thing is just research at Google shows that if a manager greets a new hire really warmly on their first day, that new hire is happier and more productive even nine months down the road. So that's such a small thing. Just like show up on that first day and make sure the person receives a warm welcome. So, I mean, there's more microactions. You can Google it. There are also many in the book. But to me, it's really just take the time. I think even a microaction is you being so careful about what you put in the email. It's these little things that really have a profound effect on how we feel. Wonderful. 
at the end of your book, Liz, and I have to point out that you've done some amazing artwork. It's rare that you see anything other than text on a page. And so it was fun. And I have to call it out because it's very uncommon and very unusual and very clever. You have all these illustrations. And so you have this one at the end, which for all intents and purposes is a pie graph. And a third, a third, a third in that pie graph is the idea of emotions being one third weak, one third irrational, and one third unprofessional. And that's kind of how we see it, you know? And that's how, honestly, this has been a big contention with the word heart because people hear it immediately go weak, unprofessional, Mm. soft, you know, dismissed. And you're saying, nope, there's another graph that has the whole pie and inside the pie is the word human. And I absolutely agree with you. So how do we change the narrative? I think one way is just to start normalizing sort of healthy emotional expression. And again, it's just set a role model for other people of, hey, you can talk about emotions and it's actually enhances productivity. And also it's not a scary thing. And you're doing it in a way that really resonates with people. Just my experience in interviewing people for the book or even talking to them about the book is the moment I'm like, oh yeah, it's this book. It's about emotion at work. People don't even let me go past that. They're like, oh, oh my gosh, I have to talk to you about this thing. And so I think there's like people, even people who might not very openly admit it, like kind of crave the ability to talk more about what they're feeling. So so much again to me comes down to setting a role model for other people. And I don't even think you need to be a leader to do this. I think again, a small thing you can start doing in meetings is if someone takes a risk, if they point out a mistake, they point out a problem, or they just ask a question, maybe, you know, they, they might be worried about like, oh, do I look dumb because I asked this question? Just take five seconds to positively reinforce that and try to say, you know, I really appreciate you pointing out problems. It's super important that as a team, we're able to flag issues we see. Just something like that, I think, just sets such a great tone or addressing your emotions and saying, hey, I didn't sleep well last night. So if I seem a little tense, it's that. I think that, again, it's such a small thing, but I think people will really respond positively to that. Fantastic. You have a lot of quotes in your book. And the big favorite of mine is this one from Bill George. And it's pretty philosophical, but it really gets into everything we've been talking about, which is, well, we'll read the quote. He says, you have to develop a keen understanding of who you are in the world. And really what he's saying is that if you don't know yourself, then you can't explain yourself to other people and let people know what pleases you and doesn't please you and what excites you and what gets you down. And, you know, that kind of self-awareness is something that I think is know thyself is just such a critical part of being successful in life, but also successful in leadership. And I'm wondering if you have any advice on the process. So maybe how did you go about it? Or how are you going about it? Yeah, to me, it starts with simply acknowledging what you're feeling. And if you don't do that, it's really hard to know yourself. So a piece of advice that my friend gave me that I really loved was, and this is when I was kind of trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. And I just was not that happy in my job. And she said, just as you go about your day, or your week, just write down the moments that bring you lightness. And so what she meant was like the moments when you feel flow, when you feel really productive, when you are excited about the thing you're doing, when you feel good about the people around you. And so I think it's just tapping into all these signals that your body is sending you 
through emotion. So I would just encourage people, whether it's journaling, whether if you're more on the mathy side, I have created an Excel spreadsheet where I track my feelings. <laughs> but I think I would encourage people take a week and then start writing out like, what are the things that made you feel strongly, whether good or bad? And I think usually like patterns will start to appear. So it's also a great way to figure out, are you an introvert or an extrovert? So when you felt exhausted, where did you go to recharge? Did you stay home and read a good book? Or did you really feel like you craved a night out with your friends? So it just all comes back to emotion and acknowledging what you're feeling in certain moments. And also where those feelings might have been established. Is that part of it too? Yeah, definitely. One other thing that we talk about in the book that might be relevant here is the ability to acknowledge your emotion. The reason that that's so powerful is it because it allows you to start identifying the need behind that emotion. And so an example is a few years ago, I was leading a team on a design project. And about two days before the deadline, everyone around me was suddenly, I found them extremely irritating. <laughs> and these were people that I really liked. And they weren't doing anything that should have been so irritating. So I just decided to walk around the block. And as I was walking around the block, I realized that I was irritable because I was anxious because I was nervous that we weren't going to meet the deadline. And so the need that I had was to understand and have, have confidence in the fact that we had a process in place to meet that deadline. And working through that allowed me to go back to the team and then sit down with them and say, hey, I'm a little nervous about meeting the deadline. Is there anything that's non-crucial to the final product? Where is everyone? Is there anything that I need to do to make sure we get this done? And after that conversation, I just wasn't irritable anymore. Mm -hmm. And so I think like where the emotion comes from is usually a need. And so if you can figure out what that need is, you're just so much better equipped to make yourself overall happier. Very good. Okay, Liz, we have a tradition on the podcast where we ask our guests a few quick answer questions we hope will give us an even greater insight into their personal influences and life philosophy. We call it the heartbeat round because we want you to answer each of them in a heartbeat. Are you game? I'm nervous, but I'm ready. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, that was very expressive of your emotion, so I appreciate that. Of all the human emotions, which one reigns supreme? I'm going to have to say love. One quality you value in people who work for you? Communication followed closely by competence. The most valuable insight you gained from writing your book? Just how important it is to just acknowledge everything you're feeling and not judge yourself for it. I think everything good starts with acknowledging the emotion that is within you. A CEO you admire for their intentional focus on emotions in their culture? Uh, I think Laszlo Bach, who led HR at Google and wrote work rules. I think he has a really great way of looking at, again, these like really small things that have such a big impact on culture. Newspaper or magazine you never miss reading? Oh, I wish I could say The New Yorker, but I have a big stack of unread <laughs> magazines. So I'm going to, I'm so going to say aspirationally, my New Yorker subscription. <laughs> you know, it comes every week and it's the most oppressive thing. So many you haven't read last week's and now you've got another one sitting there. So yeah. <laughs> skill improvement you're working on right now. I think always communication. My parents are very stoic. So I think my natural sort of tendency is always to not talk about things. So in my work and then in my relationship, I'm always working on just better expressing my emotions and my needs and being able to communicate around that. One book that profoundly changed your life. I think Haruki Murakami is what I talk about when I talk about running. 
I'm not by any means a marathon runner, but in that he talks a lot about kind of being an introvert. And I read that at a time when I was first starting to grapple with the fact that I probably didn't want to be crazily social every weekend. And so it just made me feel less alone. Your best advice on how to succeed when collaborating with another person on a big project since you just did that. Yeah, just set expectations at the beginning, not even expectations, but just have an open discussion around preferences. When do you want to be on email? How do you like to receive feedback? How do you best want to communicate? Do you like phone? Do you like in person? I think just so much miscommunication comes from unintentionally bulldozing over other people's preferences. What's the most underrated emotion? Gratitude. I think being grateful can really move you out of rumination, out of sadness into something a little less difficult to deal with. One famous person from real life or from fiction you'd most like to meet? I'm going to have to say Chris Kardashian, the mom of them, because she's like an incredible marketer. And I just kind of want to see like the behind the scenes mm -hmm. of everything that goes into their fame. What are you most looking forward to in the next 10 years? Something that's happening very soon, which is I'm just curious how the book is going to be received. I've been working on it for many years, so I hope people enjoy it. You got some wonderful endorsements from some really impressive people, including Lazo Bach, Susan Cain, Adam Grant. So I think you're going to do just fine. Thanks. I really do. The greatest piece of advice you've ever received, Liz. Yeah. So when I was at a job and just debating whether I wanted to leave and if I wanted to do something a little less structured, like try to write a book. I emailed my friend and she wrote back and she said that the stupidest thing we can do is to have the courage to step out of the mold and then continue judging ourselves by someone else's rubric. And that just never forget, it's a really beautiful thing to want something that originates from you. And that those two sentences have just stuck with me for the past like six years. So I love that. Truly wonderful. Thank you. These are really, really wonderful answers. So I thank you very much. So let's get back down to, I have one last question for you. Okay. There are so many more topics from your book that we didn't have time to really discuss, Liz. So before I let you go, I'd like to ask you, is there one piece of final advice you'd have for our listeners on how they can more successfully or most successfully tap into their emotions for better outcomes in their lives? Yeah, I would really encourage people to just start writing down what they're feeling. I think another thing is in sort of to serve that is just expand your emotional vocabulary. So this is a term called emotional granularity. And there's re research that shows that the better you're able to describe the exact feeling, the better you're able to understand the need behind it, and the better you're able to kind of like figure out what to do with it. So instead of saying, I feel bad, it's much better if you can say, I feel frustrated or I feel limited because that kind of gives you a deeper insight into the need behind that emotion. So I would say beef up emotional vocabulary and then start writing down what you're feeling in different moments. Thank you so very much, Liz. This was especially lively and truly informative discussion. And really, I think your work provides a profound reminder that all of us are far more successful in our lives and careers when we purposely balance our minds and our hearts. And so on behalf of my worldwide audience, I wish you great success with your book. And thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. This was such a great conversation and you get it. So I appreciate that. All right, Liz, thank you. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye-bye. 
As we close, I want to thank you all for introducing the podcast to your friends. Our audience just expanded into one more country, making us now heard in 100 countries around the world. And that growth is surely because of you and your generous support and referrals. And I thank you personally for that. As always, I also want to thank my great team, webmaster Randy Yant and sound engineer and producer Eric Oz. And I leave you with my consistent reminder that when you lead from the heart, your people will follow. Thank you so very much for listening. This is Mark C. Crowley signing off for now. Thank you.